0: Right so tonight we're going to be continuing on in the book of Colossians if you've been here the last several times i spoke. You know, know that we've been speaking or working our way through the book of Colossians so we're going to pick back up in Colossians chapter one and tonight we're going to be talking about leadership and so as you're turning to Colossians chapter one I want you to think about something does leadership matter does the person that you're following matter. I think most of us in here tonight would say, yes, it does matter. But then that begs the question, what does it take to be a good leader? So maybe you know, if, if you think about uh, people that you've had in your life that have been good leaders, you might think of people that are, um, people that motivate people, um, people that have vision, that know where they're going and, and uh, have a drive to get there, people that are good at delegation, uh, people that lead by example, that are servant leaders. Maybe you think of a person that's a a person of character, that they're um, the same on the inside as their outside actions, and they stick with their principles even when they're not popular. Maybe you think of a person that's full of passion, because everybody knows there's nothing like following a person that doesn't really care. But passion is infectious, and passion inspires people. So, before we jump into our text and I want to take a look at just a couple people from history that kind of exemplify some of these characteristics. So, the first one I, I picked out um, was kind of Sunday school answer it was Jesus. So, he was a good leader, so let's start with him. So, Jesus was a man of character. He was a person that was not swayed by popular opinion, even to the point to where it led to his eventual death. But he was also a man of vision, a man that had a vision for the 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 for for the church of today and he founded one of the largest movements on the planet the church today Uh, and so he did a pretty good job leading and he even did a good job at delegation if you think about it he found 12 people to follow him he did some discipleship with them and then he delegated his ministry to them Um, how about uh, Abraham Lincoln he was a man of vision right he had a a vision to keep the, the country unified. Even and he wasn't swayed by popular opinion. What about, uh, say, Winston Churchill? Have you heard of any of his speeches from during World War II? Well, full of passion, right? And inspiring. And the, it rallied people around and saved the continent. And so the premise that we like to look at tonight is simply this that we determine our, de- our destiny when we choose our leader. We determine our destiny when we choose our leader. So if you think about, say, Abraham Lincoln, when we chose for him to be the president of the the United States back during the Civil War, we chose to have a unified nation. When Great Britain, when when they elected uh, Winston Churchill as a prime minister, they chose to save the free world as we know it because you simply cannot overcome the consequences of a bad leader. And so we have to be careful about the leaders that we tr- that we choose. So this is true in a nation. This is true in our jobs. I think it's true in all of our life. And so it's also true in our spiritual lives and our faith. And so that is uh, the, the Colossian church knew about that. And they were wrestling with that about which leader that they should follow. So uh, the uh, Colossians church was a part of Asia Minor. And Asia Minor was in uh, modern day Turkey. And uh, it was a a confluence, a a melting pot, if you will, of all different types of cultures. And with different types of cultures came different types of religion. Uh, They were influenced by the Greeks, by the Romans, uh, even by Egypt and um, the Jews that were there. They all influenced the the culture as well as the religions that were there. And so there were um, all types of uh, gods that they were supposed to worship that were part of the pantheon, the Greek pantheon. Um, a lot of these might be ones that you're familiar with today because uh, of, of popular culture. Um, ones like Zeus, he was you know, the, supposed to be the top dog, and he was a god of the sky, and Poseidon, you know, god of the sea, and Ares, god of war, right? And the list goes on and on. They had gods for everything, even for gods of merchants, and er- everything, there was a god. And they also had a, uh, it wasn't enough to have a god for everything, but let's deify Caesar as a god. And there was even these mystery religions that were only for the elite. And you had to be invited into them. And if you made it through these rituals and these tests, you could join these, these secret orders and find out these secret words. It, but you couldn't share them with anyone. Paganism was also on the rise there. They worshipped uh, the, f- the ground and the flowers and the trees and nature. And so all sorts of things. It was really an amalgam of all sorts of different types of belief in Colossae. And in some ways, as we look at the United States, it kind of sounds familiar. There's really nothing new under the sun. And so the question that the Colossians were facing that we're going to look at tonight was which one was the right one? Which one should they follow? And guess what? You know, they asked the different religious leaders and they all said that theirs was the right way. So that was not very helpful. And if it was true back then, it's also true today that if you were to ask any of the different religions which way was the right way, they would all say theirs is the right way. If you look today at Islam and you ask them which is the right way, they would say you need to submit to Allah and follow their five, peers, uh, five pillars. And that theirs is the only way and everywhere, every other way is wrong. Same with Hinduism and Buddhism. They would all say the same thing. And so the list could go on and on. But they all can't be right, can they? uh, Rabbi Zacharias is is a Christian apologist. And he says that truth cannot be sacrificed on the altar of pretended tolerances. Truth cannot be sacrificed on the altar of pretended tolerances. But isn't that what the world is asking us to do today? We're all supposed to be PC, right? Politically correct and tolerate all the other different religions. I mean, if you were to go out to the street and find a random person and ask them, is this religion better than this other religion, you'd probably get a very PC correct answer of, no, they're all equal, right? And some might even go as far to take it to say that, there's, that, that all roads lead to heaven. That it doesn't really matter which religion you follow. It's just all different flavors of ice cream. But Ravi uh, Zacharias says that's baloney, that they all simply cannot be true. There's absolutely no way. Some beliefs we know from just looking at them from the surface, they just cannot possibly rewrite think of it this way if I if you have a belief that all beliefs are equal and I have a belief that they're not all equal isn't that a logical inconsistency the reality is that all the religions of the world don't even play nice together so you can say what you want about being politically correct but they don't even play well together They're not even compatible you know, if, you, if, if Judaism is right, then Islam is wrong. If Islam is right, then Christianity is wrong. And you could go on and on with that argument circularly. So they don't even play nice together. And Jesus is, is even so intolerant to say in John 14 and 6 that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except for me. And so if we look at that through a very PC mindset, we're like, he's not playing fair, right? And so if leadership determines our destiny, then doesn't the religious leader we follow also follow or determine our de- destiny? Then in, a, in the pluralistic world that we live in, not much unlike that of the one in Colossae, how do we know that he's the one that we should be following? Well, the good answer is that that's the answer that Paul is going to give us tonight in the text. So let's take a look at it. We're going to start in Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to take a look at verse 15 to start with. So Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, it says the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. It's such a powerful statement. And this section of scripture that we're going to look at tonight is so packed with theological truths that uh, quite a bit of it. We're going to take and break it down phrase by phrase just to try to pull out a portion of what Paul was trying to impart to the church in Colossae. So let's start. um, So if you were here last time I spoke, we'll back up just a hair. We looked at Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, and we talked about how Jesus rescued us, how Jesus saved us, how he transported us from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom uh, kingdom of light. And that's all fine and good if you can if if you put your trust in Jesus. Because if you're relying on him to rescue you from hell, he better be able to keep up his end of the bargain, right? Because if he's if he can't, then we have a really bad eternity ahead of us. And so Paul that's what Paul was trying to do here. He's trying to to convince the Colossians that Jesus was the way, that he was the only way, that he was the only option. So, as we look at Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, um, he's saying that the Jesus, uh, saying that Jesus, so Paul is saying that Jesus is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. So, let's look at those two phrases. The first one, the image of the invisible God. So, what does that mean? What does it mean to be an image? Well, it means to be an exact representation. The Greek word there is the word ikon, uh, which if you look through uh, the history, if you look back in the ancient Greek, it's used often of coins because their coins, much like our coins, have pictures on the front of them. Picture in their case of their king or their emperor. In our case, it's pictures of our former presidents. And so those coins had a picture or an ikon of their king on it. It had an exact representation of what that uh, what that I- king looked like. And so if you wanted to know what the king looked like, he didn't have to be there in person. You could look at the coin and you could look at his icon and know what he looked like. And so it's the same thing is true with our coins today. And so it's as close as you could get to seeing the actual king without him physically being in front of them. And so what Paul is saying here is that when you look at Jesus, you're looking at the exact representation of what God looks like. Paul is saying that Jesus is the exact image of God the Father. There is no difference. So God the Father is invisible, right? So we can't see him. And no one knows what he looks like. But Paul is saying you do know what he looks like if you know what Jesus looks like. And we can find this in other places in Scripture as well, such as John 1, 1, where it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. Was, pardon me, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It doesn't, in this case, it's talking about Jesus when it references the word. And so it's not saying that Jesus is close to God. It's not saying that Jesus is a chip off the old block. It's saying that Jesus is an exact representation of of God. And Jesus even says in John 14 and 7, if you really know me, then you know my Father as well. Or what about John 10 and verse 30, where Jesus says, I and the Father are one? And so you can trust Jesus. Because Jesus is an exact representation of God. You can trust Jesus with your salvation because Jesus is an exact representation of God. Jesus is God. And so Paul is saying here that you're not dealing with a regional deity. You're not dealing with just the God of the sky. You're not dealing with just the God of the sea. You're not dealing with Caesar. You are dealing with the whole package. You're dealing with Jesus. And he is an exact representation of God. And so what God can do, Jesus can do. And Paul goes on and and he says that Jesus is not only the exact representation of God, but he's also the firstborn over all creation. So what does that mean? The firstborn over all creation. Let's start with what it doesn't mean. I don't know if you've had any conversations with Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons, but they love to quote this verse. They love to quote it and have you look it up and read it, and they like to have, uh, say, see, it says that Jesus was created. He was born, and uh, there's a time when he was not. The only problem with that is if you look at the, the context of the original Greek, that's not what it's saying at all. It's, it, 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 if you take that word, it literally does translate into the word that we use today for firstborn. But there's a different connotation to that word today than back then. You see, what it's really talking about is the right of primogenitor. Doesn't that help? S- settles all that. The right of primogenitor. So the right of primogenitor, if you take that and break it down into its simplest form, what it really means is that whoever the oldest is, they're the boss. So in the ancient world, the older you were, the more important you were. You can see this happening in your household if, if you have uh, multiple siblings, if you grew up with multiple siblings, or if you have multiple kids. And you can see the, uh, or if you have, don't have any kids, you can see it even in the movies portrayed by Hollywood or whatever. Uh, you can see the parents that, are, that go away on a trip of some kind, and the oldest one stands up and says, I'm in charge. You have to do what I say. And the younger one says, you're not the boss of me. And the older one says, yes, I am. So that is what Paul is talking about here. Except in the ancient world, it's even more so. The oldest son. If you were the oldest son, you got all the roles. You got all the responsibilities. You got all the privileges. And when your dad was away, you were in charge. You could act in your father's name. And you were responsi- as responsible as your father. You had the authority to do anything you wanted in your father's name. So Paul is saying that Jesus is the f- When Paul is saying when he says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, he's not saying that Jesus was born, but he's saying that he is the oldest. He is the highest. He outranks everybody and nobody was born before he was because he is eternal. So what does it really mean to be the firstborn? Well, there's another scripture in the Bible that references the are firstborn. What does it mean to be firstborn? There's another scripture in the Bible that references this idea of firstborn, and it's in Psalm 89. And so Psalm 89 is a dialogue between God and a leader. I believe his name is Ethan. And uh, God is uh, talking about his servant, David. And if you remember, David was the youngest of, of, eight kid, of eight brothers, but God in the scripture is going to call him a firstborn. So in Psalms 89 and verse 27, it says, I will appoint him to be my firstborn, the most exalted king, the most exalted king of the earth, (coughs) excuse me, of the earth. So God is saying here that he appointed David to be the firstborn, even though he wasn't biologically the firstborn. And then God goes on to give us the answer. What does it mean to be the firstborn? To be the firstborn is to be the most exalted king over all the earth. And so God is saying that Jesus or Paul is saying here that Jesus is the firstborn. He is the most exalted king over all the earth. And Jesus is the exact representation of God. And he is over all and he is above all. And so Paul is saying that he is someone worth trusting. He is someone worth putting your faith in for your salvation because that is who Jesus is. um, Because that is who Jesus is Paul goes on in the the next couple of verses to answer a simple question. So what? So what that Jesus is the image of the the image of the invisible God. So what that He's the firstborn over all creation. Why does that really matter? And so to answer that Paul makes two major assertions and assertions in the verses that follow. So let's take a look at the first one. So for the first one we're going to look at Colossians chapter 1 verses 16 and 17. So Colossians chapter 1 verses 16 and 17 for in him all things were created things in heaven and things on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. So if we were to summarize this verse in just one sentence, I would summarize it as Jesus is in control of this world. But notice how Paul breaks it down. He breaks it down by first saying that he's the God of the heavens and the earth. And often they looked at the heavens as as the sky above as space. So are, are you afraid of a meteorite falling out of the sky and hitting you? Well, don't worry about that. God's got it covered because he's the God of the heavens and the earth. Are you afraid of the boogeyman getting you in the middle of the night? Well, don't worry. God's got that covered, too. It says that he is the God of the visible and the invisible. Are you afraid of a leader that is an authority over you? Well, don't worry. God's got that covered, too. It says that he is the God of the thrones, those in political power. He's the God of, of, of the powers, the rulers and the authorities, those not in political power. So in him, all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Because because he created them, he is in control of them. So you might think, well, what difference does that make? Well, Paul is writing to a small church that's a small group of Christians, and they're being persecuted. Life's not going well for them. The Jews are against them. The Romans are against them. The pagans are against them. Pretty much everyone is against them. So imagine the fear that they would have. Think of the fears you could have today. I mean, what keeps you up at night? What do you worry about? What can hurt you in this world? Can a foreign government make a decision that hurts you? Can a politician make a decision that hurts you? Can your boss make a decision that hurts you? Can a drunk driver make a decision that hurts you? Can a germ hurt you? I mean, if you take time to think about it and dwell on all that, you can, it could leave you, leave, leave you feeling a little bit defenseless. Because what protection do you have against these things that could, that could easily ruin your life? Well, if, you, if Jesus is your savior, you have one thing going in your favor. And that's the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. Jesus. He is above all. He is over all. And he has us in the palm of his hand. And in John 10 and 28, it says that no one can snatch us out of his hand. Nothing is a match for him. No political power, no boss, no germ, no evil spirit is a match for him. He is capable of being your savior. Because he makes everything, he's in control of everything, and he is over everything. And everything in the world must ultimately answer to him. So let's take a look at his next assertion. It's in Colossians chapter one, verses eighteen through twenty, and it says, "And he is the head of the body, the church. He he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For uh, for God was pleased to have his to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things." whether things, in earth, things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So Paul is saying here that God is not only in control of the physical world, but he's also in control of the spiritual world too. He's not just looking out, for he doesn't just care about your body, but he cares about your soul too. And that is something that no other person, that no other religion, that no other philosophy can do. In verse 19 it says, For uh, for God was pleased to, ha- try that again, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. So when Jesus died upon the cross, it wasn't just a man up on the cross dying who was dying for your sins. It was God upon the cross dying for your sins. And so God himself, since Jesus is God, God died for your sins. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to, be, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things in heaven or things on earth, by making peace through, his, through his, shed blood, or his blood shed on the cross. Think of it this way. If I have an issue with you and I send, uh, but for some reason I don't want to go talk to you myself, so I send an emissary to come and talk to you. And that my emissary comes and talks to you and you guys work out a deal and uh, you think you start to think everything's about right. But then you have this thought in the back of your head. So I know I'm okay with this emissary guy, but what about Nathaniel? Am I good with him? I mean, I ultimately I didn't have an issue with this emissary. I had an issue with him. So am I okay with him or just with this emissary? So that is what Paul is saying here, that when Jesus came and he died on the cross He's saying you're not dealing with an emissary. And that is the difference between Christianity and as far as I know, every other religion in the world. I mean, if you think about it, Buddha, he didn't claim to be a god. He was just a man who who wanted to set people on the path to enlightenment. If you find a Muslim and you ask them, is Muhammad a god? They would claim, they would say, no, there's only one god and it's Allah. He's just a prophet. It's only Jesus that can say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so that is what Jesus, uh, so Jesus is saying that, that he is God. And Jesus is saying that if he died for your, cro- died for your sins on the cro- cross, that God died for your sin on the cross. Jesus is saying that if, if he says your sins are forgiven, then God says your sins are forgiven. If he says you're reconciled, then God is saying that you're reconciled. You don't have to worry about a miscommunication through an emissary. You don't have to worry about something being lost in translation because he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. And when he died on the cross, when God says that it was enough to satisfy uh, satisfy the price for your sin, then it was, and we can be reconciled. And so Jesus is saying, you owed a debt to me, but because I died, I paid that debt. And I, so, some people today might say, "All right, all right, I hear what you're saying." But how do I know that this is true? I mean, I know it's it's in the Bible, and you know. I, it's, it's the most reliable historical text that's out there. And I know it's 66 books and it's seamlessly woven together in, into one story. And I know it's the best-selling book of all time, but it's just a book, right? I mean, I, I'm betting my soul on this. How do I know that it's true? And because of that, Paul, see what Paul puts in verse 18. So in verse 18, it says, And he was the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be the firstborn from among the dead? That means that he conquered death, right? He rose from the dead. So how can we know that that Jesus is the the image of the invisible God? How can we know that he is the firstborn over all creation? How can we know um, that he's looking to look after us in this world? How can we know that he's going to look after us in the world to come? How do we know that that his death was enough to pay the price for our sins? Because he was the firstborn. uh, He was the firstborn from among the dead. He did something that no one else has been able to do. He rose from the dead. And whatever else you might put forth as proof for our faith, proof for the, the gospel, there's nothing more important than the resurrection of Jesus. Nothing else proves the Bible to be true. Nothing else proves that that Jesus' blood was enough to cover our sins than the resurrection of Jesus. So do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? I hope so, because there's a lot of good evidence out there that that says that he did. There's one thing I know for sure, and even the, the greatest skeptics will agree to this, that there was a man named Jesus, and that he was crucified, and that he did die on the cross. There's Roman historians that, re- that record this, so, and they weren't even Christians. So it's not just the Bible that, that puts that fact forward. And the Bible says that he, w- he didn't just die for five minutes and God sat down an angel with a defibrillator and brought him back to life. No, it says that he was dead for a weekend. Even with the, the modern marvels of modern-day me- uh, modern medicine, in as little as three minutes, you start to experience brain death. And in most cases, if you've been dead for over 15 minutes, they just call you completely brain dead. And no defibrillator is going to help with that. So he wasn't just dead, but he was dead for a weekend. He wasn't just dead for a weekend, but he was wrapped like a mummy in grave clothes. He wasn't just wrapped in grave clothes, but he was put in a tomb. He wasn't just put in a tomb, but there's a big boulder rolled in front of it that would have taken multiple people to get it rolled into place. And he wasn't just, wasn't just a boulder over the front of it. It says that it was sealed. And it wasn't just sealed, but there were two Roman soldiers out front guarding that tomb. So some might say, well, what if he didn't really die? What if he was just mostly dead, but not all dead? Well, let's think about that for a minute. If, if he was only mostly dead, that when he woke up in the tomb, he'd have to get out of the grave clothes. I guess he could probably do that. But then he'd have to break the seal in the tomb and roll the boulder away that took multiple people to get it there. He had to disorient two guards and sneak away um, without them noticing. And keep in mind, he'd be doing all of this with holes in his hands and holes in his feet and a hole in his side. So I'm not sure that even your favorite action character would be able to do that. And then the Bible goes on in Luke 24, and it talks about what he did the next day. And the next day, he it says that Jesus took a seven-mile walk to Emmaus. And you might say, seven miles doesn't sound bad. I'm out a little bit out of shape, but I can walk seven miles, right? But could you do it with holes in your feet? It seems like you have trouble doing that. So it doesn't really seem like a plausible thing. It doesn't seem very realistic that. He wasn't really dead, so I'm not sure that that theory is right. I mean, we should probably hold more to what the Roman historians say that he really did die. Well, I guess you could say that maybe uh, maybe the disciples broke in and stole his body. Right? That's that's plausible, right? I mean, they could they could disorient the guards and t- move the stone and steal the body, right? But the Bible says that there was witnesses to Jesus being alive after he died. I mean, it wasn't just one or two. The Bible says there were. 500 so what do we do with that the christian apologist by the name of josh mcdowell says that if he took all 500 of those people he took them into a court of law and he had them testify to to what they had seen and they only spent six minutes apiece giving their testimony and cross-examination that you would have an amazing 50 hours of firsthand testimony 50 hours of people saying, I saw him when he was alive. I saw him when he was on the cross dying. And I saw him after he rose from the dead. And that, plus a bunch of other evidence, it would be the largest, most lopsided trial of all time. And that is something that no one else has been able to do, to rise from the dead. And so that is why when his disciples see him rise from the dead, their demeanor completely changes. If you look at it in the Gospels, when they come to arrest Jesus in in the garden, they all flee. But we spent a decent amount of last year looking at the book of Acts and what happened after they had seen Jesus rise from the dead. And we see a completely different picture. We see disciples that are willing to even give their lives for Jesus. And if it was all a lie, if it was all a hoax, Would you be willing to carry that charade that far? Would you be willing to carry the lie that far to even give up your life? I mean, it seems like right before they chop your head off, you might be like, oh, I'm going to change my story just a little bit. And you might convince me that maybe one or two of them, but not all of them. I mean, if if you ever looked into how the disciples uh, died, Peter was crucified. Not just crucified, but crucified upside down. Even worse than being crucified. Andrew was crucified. Thomas, doubting Thomas, the one who said he wouldn't believe it unless he put his fingers in the holes where the stakes were. He believed it so much that he allowed himself to be pierced to the heart by four separate spears from four separate soldiers. He believed it that much. Matthew was stabbed to death. John, he survived being boiled in oil to be sent to the island of Patmos to be alone and forgotten. But he continued to seek God. And he, on the island of Patmos, he wrote the book of Revelation. And we could go on and on and go through all of them, but let's look at one more. How about James, the brother of Jesus? He was stoned to death. Would you be willing to be stoned to death just to cover up a lie for your brother? I mean, most brothers won't even clear in their brother's room, right? So would you be willing to believe that, that, they, that he allowed himself to be stoned to death for a lie? with the 500 witnesses, with the 12 disciples' witnesses, with, with seeing them, what their lives were like after they had seen Jesus, I would say that there's enough evidence to conclude that Jesus rose again. He didn't just die, but he rose again. And so if the worship team wants to come back, I'm going to wrap up here real quick. And so today, I'd like to give you a challenge. Choose today who you will follow. Because who you will follow will determine your, de- your de- destiny. And if you've already chosen Christ, then you've chosen well, because he is an exact representation of God. He is the most exalted over all the earth. He is in control of the now, and he holds us in the palm of his hand. And He will look after your spiritual soul as well. You just have to put your trust in him. He'll take care of you from now into eternity. And you can know that he can do that because he is the firstborn from the dead. He has conquered death. He is the, f- the firstborn from the dead. Notice it says the firstborn from the dead, not the last. In John 14, 19, it says, because I live, you will also live. One day, there's going to be a trump that sounds. And the dead in Christ shall rise. And then we who are still alive will be caught up with him in the air. These are not fairy tales. They're sure things. And they're our blessed hope. Because Jesus is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn over all creation. So tonight, with every head bowed and every eye closed, I feel I like would be remiss if I didn't give an opportunity for you to make that decision, to make that decision for who you will follow as your leader. And so tonight, if, if, if for the first time in your life you want to choose to follow Jesus, if you want to choose to make him the leader of your life, just simply raise your hand. tonight. Okay. All right, you guys can look up. So for the rest of us, I trust that you have already made that decision that you've already chosen your leader. And I trust that it is Jesus. So in the few minutes that we have left, I'd like to open the altars and spend even just five minutes in prayer tonight. I want you to ask yourself a question. If Jesus is your leader, how good of a follower are you? Are you the type of follower that gets distracted easy? Well, spend some time tonight recommitting to follow your leader. Ask him, to keep you, ask him to help you keep your singular focus on Him and help keep you from straying away. Are you the type of leader that says that, that God is in the driver's seat, but sometimes you kick Him out of the driver's seat because you think you know better and you want to drive? Ask Him to help you to put your trust in Him, even in those tough times. And so tonight, I'd just like to open the altars, or you can make an altar where you're at. And Let's just spend a few minutes in prayer. And Pastor C.J., I'll come back and close this out.
1: If you'd allow me just to interrupt long enough to just, in a way, give a formal dismissal, but that does not mean you have to stop your time of prayer. Just for those that are on a tight schedule with kids and school, I want to make sure you feel comfortable being able to go, but spend as much time, I I just want to reiterate how awesome it is and how fitting with what Nathan preached tonight, that, that the Lord is bringing up leaders if I could just say this, I remember when I first met Nathan come here, I don't think I could get a few words out of the guy in a conversation, but that's, that's probably because he was trying to figure me out. But, but Nathan has a lot to give, a lot to share, and he's definitely displayed that God has put a calling on his life. And So um, I just say that take his life and his example as a challenge, fitting with his message that um God did not call you to warm a pew, but to find that place of ministry, and uh, to fulfill that. So, as you want to, if you want to continue your time in prayer, go ahead. But this will be our formal dismissal.